Hello lovely Buddhas. Welcome to the first episode of this podcast. I am starting with volume 1 of The New Human Revolution by Daisaku Ikeda. In this episode I will cover pages 3 to 22. You can just listen to the reading or grab the book and read along with me. So here we go. The New Human Revolution volume 1 introduction. Outside the fog stole silently gently embracing the green trees and plants amid this white veil i began work on the manuscript of the new human revolution as i reminisced about my revered mentor josai toda this scene took place on august 6 this year at the nagano training center in karuizawa japan karuizawa is the place where 8 months before my mentor's death i resolved to write the human revolution to transmit without error a record of president toda's life and spirit for future generations it is a place rich with boundless memories of the wow shared by mentor and disciple this day august 6 was also the 48th anniversary of the atomic bombing of hiroshima president toda announced his declaration for the abolition of nuclear war weapons on september 8 1957 entrusting his youthful disciples with the spread of its ideals throughout the world as part of his legacy my mentor strained to hear the faint cries of the silent masses of the world who suffer endlessly amid warfare and tyranny often he would say i want to rid the world of misery this was his dream and his determination mentor and disciple are inseparable because they are so united i too embrace my mentor's heart as i travel the world opening the way for a great river of peace and happiness a river's grandeur attests to the greatness of its source what inspired me to write the new human revolution series as a continuation of the human revolution was my thought that the extent to which kosen rufu has unfolded since my mentor's passing serves as a genuine proof of his greatness in addition to transmit my mentor's spirit for eternity I felt that I must leave a record of the path his disciples who inherited his legacy have followed. To do so, however, I could not avoid writing about myself, a fact that caused me great hesitation. Moreover, a mountain of issues and problems must be resolved before lasting peace based upon global kosen rufu becomes a reality. With this in mind, I was also concerned whether I could make enough time to write. I cannot deny that my frame of mind at the time was to want to ask someone else if at all possible to write the new series. However, even if there was someone I could ask to document my travels and encounters, that person would be unable to record what was in my heart and mind at the time. There is also a genuine aspect of the Soka Gakkai's history of which only I am aware. In addition, I have received strong requests from the Sekyo Shimbun to publish the New Human Revolution series. Thus, although I had a number of concerns, I resolved to pick up my pen once again and begin writing. The New Human Revolution opens on October 2, 1960. the day that Shinichi Yamamoto having succeeded Josai Toda as third president embarks on a historic journey for peace that will take him to three nations the united states 
Canada and Brazil. The work will go on to portray the Soka Renaissance, the triumph of ordinary people as they illuminate the world with the humanism of Nichiren Daishonin's Buddhism and open a new page in the history of humankind. Mahatma Gandhi proclaimed that the power of the spirit is stronger than any atomic bomb. To transform this century of war into a century of peace, we must cultivate the limitless inherent power of human life. This is the human revolution and it will be the theme that flows consistently throughout the series. Just as before, I will be giving fictitious names to the characters that appear in the story. At times, several real individuals will be combined into a single character and at other times, real individuals will be portrayed as multiple characters. For this reason, each character in the story will not necessarily accord with a single real individual. I hope, therefore, that readers will always view the characters in the narrative as fictional. I expect the new human revolution to comprise 30 volumes by the time it is completed. It will certainly be a supreme challenge to finish writing it within my lifetime. Nevertheless, only by fulfilling our mission in this life do we truly live. Kute, Hugo and Tolstoy were all still working vigorously in their 80s, continuing to pen their convictions. I am 65 and still young. I have taken writing the new human revolution as my life's work. In it, I am determined to continue to record, to the limits of my ability, the diamond-like, genuine path of mentor and disciple and depict the grand portrait of glory created by the precious children of the Buddha as they have advanced with the dream of worldwide Kosen Rufu, just as Nichiren Daishonin taught. Truth and falsehood, good and evil, winners and losers, all will be rigorously depicted. I cannot help thinking that President Toda is steadfastly watching me. I only ask, from the bottom of my heart, for the warm support of all of you, the readers. Daisaku Ikeda, November 1993 Chapter 1. Sunrise Nothing is more precious than peace. Nothing brings more happiness. Peace is the most basic starting point for the advancement of humankind. October 2, 1960 Shinichi Yamamoto was 32 years old. With a passionate resolve for peace burning in his heart, he set out on a worldwide journey. Only five months had passed since he was inaugurated as the third president of the Soka Gakkai. On this day, Tokyo was blessed with crystal clear skies and fresh autumn air. Members had been converging on Tokyo's Haneda International Airport since early that morning and by around 9.30 the observation deck was packed with people. They had come to see off their president, Shinichi Yamamoto, on his first visit overseas. At 10.10, a stir ran through the observation deck as the six travellers, including Shinichi, emerged from the terminal buildings. Besides Shinichi, the party included Vice General Director Kiyoshi Jujo, Director Yukio Ishikawa, Study Department Chief Chuhei Yamadaira, Youth Division Chief Aisuke Akizuki and Women's Division Chief 
Katsu Kiyohara. Before boarding the plane, the travellers lined up, removed the hats they were wearing and waved them at the crowd. Joyous cheers and applause erupted into the clear sky. The plane, Japan Airlines Flight 800, dubbed Fuji, took off with a thunderous roar at 10.40 a.m. on a direct course for Honolulu, Hawaii. Fuji was Japan's first large-scale passenger jet. It had been commissioned to fly only that August and marked the start of a new era in air travel. Below them, Shinichi could see the ocean of his beloved Omori, the town where he was born and raised. Countless silver waves sparkled in the sunlight, reflecting off the ocean's surface, as if to congratulate Shinichi and bid him bon voyage on his journey. Shinichi quietly placed his hand on his chest. In the inner breast pocket of his coat, he carried a photograph of his mentor, Josai Toda. He would never forget the time that Toda, ill in bed at the head temple just prior to his death, told him he dreamt he had gone to Mexico. Toda had said to him, They were all waiting. Everyone was waiting. They were all seeking Nichiren Daishonin's Buddhism. I want to go. To travel the world on a journey for Kosen Rufu. Shinichi, the world is your challenge. It is your true stage. It is a vast world. On that day, without speaking, Shinichi had firmly grasped the hand Toda had extended to him from under the covers of his futon. Toda gazed steadily at Shinichi's face and then spoke with all the energy he could muster. Shinichi, you must live. You must live as long as you can and travel the globe. Toda's eyes glistened brilliantly. Shinichi had engraved these words in his heart as Toda's will for the future. On behalf of his departed mentor, the disciple was now taking his first step towards world Kosenryufu. When he thought of this, Shinichi felt a surge of passionate emotion rise within him. Shinichi had chosen the second day of October as his departure date for this first overseas tour because Toda's passing on April 2, 1958 is commemorated on the second day of each month. He was acutely aware of the deep import behind Toda's desire that he should travel the globe. Fifteen years had passed since the world end of World War II, yet humanity's hopes for peace still remained in vain. The East and West had become mired in a Cold War with no end in sight. At the same time, there was a dramatic escalation in the nuclear arms race among the major nations of the Eastern and Western blocs, led respectively by the Soviet Union and the United States. Conflict also continued to rage in Africa as struggles for independence against colonial rule erupted in each area, while racial and ethnic strife flared in various parts of the globe. Everywhere, people were quailing under the threat of nuclear holocaust, living in fear amid civil strife or suffering from discrimination, cruelty, poverty and disease. Yet, all surely cherished the hope of witnessing a dawn of peace and happiness. Toda's words to Shinichi had been nothing but an urgent appeal for the happiness of humanity by a Buddhist leader who keenly discerned the state of the world. Happiness is life's goal. 
peace is what all people desire. The course of human history must move towards peace and happiness. It is the nature of the human being to search for a firm guiding principle that will lead in this direction. Science, politics, society and religion too must focus on this crucial point. Shinichi thought to himself, Nichiren Daishonin regarded the sufferings of humankind as his own and held aloft the banner of Risho Ankoku, the desire to establish a peaceful society based upon his Buddhism. He clearly revealed the guiding principle that leads humanity to peace and happiness. Nichiren Daishonin wrote, Can there be any doubt that the great pure law of the Lotus Sutra will be spread far and wide throughout Japan and all other continents of the Jambudvipa? The Daishonin predicted the worldwide spread of his Buddhism and entrusted his disciples of future generations with the realization of this goal. Now, the time was right to realize Nichiren's prediction. 32 years after his birth into this world, Shinichi had now taken on the accomplishment of global Kosunrufu as his life's mission and was about to open the door to this great task that lay before him. The thought made his heart leap with excitement. Nichiren Daishonin's Buddhism reveals that all human beings are endowed equally with the Buddha nature and that each individual is an entity of Ichinen Sanzen. It also elucidates the means by which human beings can cast off the shackles that bind them. The Daishonin's Buddhism, which espouses the dignity, equality and freedom of human beings, is truly a world religion dedicated to the realization of peace for all humanity. Illuminating the way towards the 21st century, it casts a great universal light of happiness over the world. Nevertheless, this Buddhism of Nichiren Daishonin had yet to cross the ocean to the rest of the world. In fact, no Buddhism from Japan had ever spread widely overseas. With the increase of Japanese emigration that began in Japan's Meiji era, some forms of Japanese Buddhism, such as Jodo Shinshu, did undertake propagation activities overseas, spreading in such places as Hawaii, the west coast of the United States, and Brazil. However, these religions were disseminated only among people of Japanese ancestry and never transcended the framework of the ethnic religion called Japanese Buddhism. The Buddhist scholar Daisetsu Suzuki travelled to America and elsewhere to introduce Buddh Buddhist thought to the West. But his efforts created little more than a Zen fad among some intellectuals in Europe and the United States. It was against this backdrop that Shinichi Yamamoto made his first overseas visit, a visit that would open the way for the movement of today's Soka Gakkai International. Aimed at creating a record of human revitalization, the SGI shines a light of humanism on the world's suffering people. Shinichi's trip signaled the start of a new, unprecedented stage in the annals of Buddhism. Strangely enough, that year, 1960, also marked exactly 700 years since Nichiren Daishonin wrote his treatise Risho Anukoku Ron on establishing the correct teaching for the peace of the land, thus sparking the initial flame towards the realization of lasting peace. It was a truly mysterious coincidence of timing. Shinichi's trip would take him to nine cities in three countries, beginning with Honolulu, Hawaii, 
then moving on to San Francisco, Seattle, Chicago, Toronto in Canada, New York, Washington DC, Sao Paulo in Brazil, and finally to Los Angeles. He was scheduled to return to Japan on October 25th. One purpose of the trip was to offer encouragement and guidance in faith to Soka Gakkai members who were beginning to appear in these areas. Another objective was to purchase building materials for the grand reception hall, the Dai Kyakuden, which the Soka Gakkai would build as a donation to the head temple. At the headquarters general meeting, in which he was inaugurated as the third president of the Soka Gakkai, Shinichi had announced the construction of the grand reception hall as one of the goals he wished to complete before the seventh memorial service for his departed mentor, Jose Toda. The structure was to be built and furnished with the finest materials from around the world. Yet another aim of the trip was to witness firsthand the conditions overseas, with an eye towards shaping plans for the future realization of Kosun Rufu. Shinichi removed the picture of Jose Toda from the inside pocket of his coat and fixed his eyes upon it. He thought how happy Toda would have been if he could have accompanied him on this journey. Shinichi recalled how Toda had often said, Japan lost the war, but it was the abolishment of the peace preservation law under MacArthur's allied occupation policy that brought true religious freedom to Japan. This ushered in the time for Kosun Rifu. MacArthur functioned as a protective force, a shorten zenzin. He functioned as a bonten or taishaku. I want to go to America to repay this debt of gratitude. Toda was surprisingly well-versed not only in America's history, but also in that country's politics, economy, literature and philosophy. He often related his view of the lives of such American luminaries as Lincoln, Washington, Emerson and Franklin. His analysis of these and other great people was colourful and vivid, yet penetrating and deep. Listening to him speak, a clear image of the person would emerge as if he or she was standing before one's very eyes. Nevertheless, Toda had died at the age of 58 without ever setting foot outside of Japan. A fresh resolve arose within Shinichi, and he vowed, I will stand upon the soil of America on Sensei's behalf. I will definitely make history anew. Seven hours after taking off from Tokyo's Haneda airport for Hawaii, the jetliner began its gradual descent. Shinichi's watch, which he had set to local Hawaiian time, read 10.30 p.m. October the 1st. Hawaii was 19 hours behind Japan. Eventually, the plane entered its final approach for landing. Looking out the window, Shinichi saw lights glimmering in the distance like so many jewels scattered beneath the night sky. They were the city lights of Honolulu. The jetliner landed at Honolulu airport a little after 11pm, almost an hour behind schedule. Though it was late at night, the air outside was hot. Hawaii was indeed a land of perpetual summer. Sweat soon began to appear on the brows of Shinichi and his companions, who were dressed for autumn in coats and hats. A long line had formed at the airport immigration counter as they waited to conclude their immigration procedure. Shinichi asked Kiyoshi Jujo, Mr. Jujo, is your English really okay? Before their departure, Jujo had said he was confident about his English. Yes, Jujo answered proudly. I have no problem. 
so long as it's only daily conversation. English was strictly drilled into me while I was in the Naval Academy. Shinichi and his travelling companions had waited about 30 minutes before reaching the immigration counter. As their turn approached, Kiyoshi Jujo said to Shinichi, Sensei, I will go through the immigration procedure ahead of you. After that, I'll interpret for you. Eventually, Jujo's turn arrived. He showed his passport to the official at the counter, who then asked him a question in English. Jujo stood there momentarily with a bewildered look. He then said, Wansu moa purizu. Once more, please. Jujo repeated the phrase again and again. The official also repeated his question several times, but seemed to conclude that the exchange was going nowhere. He turned up his hands and shook his head in a gesture of futility. A bystander, perhaps a travel agent, who seemed unable to stand by and watch any longer, came over to interpret. Thus, the group was somehow freed from their dilemma. My gosh, Hawaiian English certainly is hard to follow, said Jujo with a strained smile, scratching his head. Shinichi keenly sensed how important it would be to foster competent interpreters for the full-fledged development of worldwide Kosun Rufu. By the time they got through customs, picked up their bags and headed for the arrival area, it was already after midnight on October 2nd. Arrangements had been made for a young men's division member, Nagayasu Masaki, to meet them at the airport. Masaki had come to America to study in May three years ago and would be acting as a guide and interpreter for Shinichi and the others during their trip. The plane was late. Masaki must be tired of waiting, Shinichi said to Jujo with some concern. Yes, he said he, was, he would give us a grand welcome in Hawaii with a large group of fellow members, Jujo replied. Entering the arrival area, they found it bustling with people, but there was no sign of Masaki. They set their bags down in a corner and waited. The first glimpse of Honolulu Airport presented them with many curious and unfamiliar sights. There were young girls dressed in Hawaiian mumus carrying brightly coloured lace. An older man with grey hair was wearing a red aloha shirt. There was also a group of Japanese men looking neat and proper in neckties. As the arriving passengers found their waiting friends and loved ones, smiles broke out all around. Hugs were exchanged and one group after another left the airport. Masaki is not here, said Kiyoshi Jujo anxiously to Aisuke Akizuki. He was supposed to be here to meet us. Yes, that's right. It's strange. The crowd thinned as the other passengers who had arrived with them filtered out of the arrival area. It's terrible to be left stranded in a place like this, the usually confident Katsuki Ohara said helplessly. We don't know anything about this place. Just then, a slightly built young man, dressed in an aloha shirt, who had been watching them from one corner of the arrival lobby, approached. President Yamamoto of the Soka Gakai? he asked somewhat hesitantly. Shinichi recognized the young man's face. Yes, thank you for coming. With this, the youth relaxed into an open and friendly smile. I am Tony Harada, a member of the young men's division. I know you, said Shinichi. We've met once before. That's right. I met you at the Soka Gakai headquarters before I left for Hawaii, said Harada. The young Harada placed a lay 
he had prepared for the occasion around Shinichi's neck and shook his hand. Harada's unexpected welcome brought relieved looks to the travellers' faces. But as soon as he had presented everyone with a lay, Harada said, Well, I'll be going now. As Harada was preparing to leave, Shinichi said, Thank you. You're going already? Yes, now that I have been able to welcome you, I'll be going. Are there any others? Shinichi inquired. Gee, I don't know. I'm not staying here on Oahu. I live on the island of Hawaii. I received a letter from Japan saying that you would be coming to Honolulu, so I took the plane here. I see. Do you have a place to stay? Shinichi asked. Thank you. Yes, I'm staying with my aunt. Please don't worry about me. Goodbye. Harada, totally oblivious to the group's predicament, was worried that he would be in the way if he stayed too long. Well, in that case, why don't we meet again tomorrow morning, said Shinichi. I'll be staying at the Kaimana Hotel. Yes, sir, Harada replied cheerfully as he walked off at a brisk space. The travellers gazing after him in astonishment. With Harada gone, they were again swept by a sense of helplessness. The lights in the airport arrival lobby were being gradually dimmed as the area grew steadily quieter and more deserted. Where on earth is Masaki? blurted out the short-tempered Yukio Ishikawa, his voice full of anger. Sensei, I'll go out to look for him, Kiyoshi Jujo offered. Akizuki, I'll have a look outside. Why don't you look for him inside? With this, Jujo headed off with Akizuki to search for Masaki. Akizuki returned after a short time, reporting that he had not seen Masaki. Jujo followed a few moments later. I couldn't find Masaki, Sensei, but there's a car from the Kaimana Hotel waiting outside. It's already very late. Why don't we take it to the hotel? Everybody agreed with Jujo's suggestion and left by car for the hotel. The Kaimana Hotel was a modest three-story structure right at the end of Waikiki Beach. It was almost 2 a.m. by the time they arrived there. After placing their bags in their respective rooms, they all eventually converged on Shinichi's room, as if by some unconscious impulse. It had been quite a while since they had eaten dinner on the plane, and each of them was hungry and looked utterly exhausted. I sure am hungry, said Shinichi, voicing what was on everyone's mind. But there wasn't a single shop near the hotel, which was quite a distance from the main shopping and business district. Also, perhaps due to the late hour, room service was not available. Shinichi took out some nori, that is dried seaweed, that he had brought from Japan and divided it among them. Everyone looked dejected, with no one to greet them on their first trip overseas and nothing but dried seaweed to stave off their hunger, they felt forlorn and abandoned. Sensing this, Shinichi smiled cheerfully and said, Our eating nori together like this will be a precious memory for us in the future. Isn't it exciting to think that this night will remain in the history of our lives as part of the opening act of a grand drama? Despite Shinichi's words, however, none of them could truly feel any sense of excitement. Nevertheless, just being around Shinichi and his confident smile seemed to erase their uneasiness. Outside the hotel window lingered the deep darkness of pre-dawn. Around the time that Shinichi and the others were arriving at Kaimana Hotel, 
Nagayasu Masaki was at an inn that was run by a Japanese-American family. He arrived in Honolulu from his home in Washington, D.C. four days earlier. He had been contacting and encouraging the small number of members who lived scattered throughout the area. Originally, Masaki had received clear information that Shinichi and his party would be arriving at 10 p.m. on October the 1st. Their arrival time was also reported in the Sekyo Shimbun, which published a schedule of President Yamamoto's planned overseas visit. From early in the morning of October 1, the day Shinichi was to arrive, Masaki set out to visit the homes of about 20 members on the island to reconfirm with them the President's scheduled arrival that evening. Accompanying him were Yumiko Nagata, a young woman who had served as a young women's division unit chief in Japan and was now playing a central role in contacting the Hawaiian members and one member of the Hawaiian Young Men's Division. In the evening, after they had finished their rounds, the two young men escorted Nagata back to her apartment. There, she found an airmail letter from Japan. It was from the Overseas Affairs section of the Soka Gakai headquarters. She quickly opened the envelope and found the following message. We hasten to inform you of a sudden change in schedule. The originally scheduled arrival in Honolulu at 10 p.m. on October 1st had been changed to 7.55 a.m. on October the 2nd. The flight number will be JAL 800, the same as before. Please convey this information to all concerned. The three were stunned by the news. They hurriedly left the apartment, jumped into the car and began to call on all the members at home once again. Besides informing each person of the change in the arrival schedule, they also asked everyone to meet at the airport at 6 a.m. the following morning. It was around 10 p.m. by the time they finished making their rounds to the members' homes. On the way back, they stopped the car at Tantalus Hill overlooking the city of Honolulu. As they stood atop the hill, a beautiful panorama of city lights unfolded beneath their eyes. Off to their right lay the airport. Tomorrow, we'll be greeting President Yamamoto at that airport, said Masaki, his voice trembling slightly with excitement. Sensei is coming to Hawaii. It's just like a dream, exclaimed Nagata. Tomorrow will be a fresh start for Hawaii. There was elation in her voice as well. The thought of welcoming President Shinichi Yamamoto to Hawaii dispelled the fatigue they had accumulated throughout the day while rushing from one, one member's home to another. The night breeze felt good on their faces, which were moist with perspiration. Just around that very time, however, Shinichi's plane was preparing to land at Honolulu Airport. That brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you have an amazing day. Until next time.